Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 8, Episode 17. Last week, I worked through a trio of minor judges, then started on probably the most well-known judge, Samson. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm finishing the biblical narrative of Samson, all in anticipation of working through the outside record. And with that, let's get started. In the last episode, I covered how Samson's parents were told of his mission before he was born, including how he was to be raised a Nazarite, then how he met his wife, killed a lion, made a sizable bet, was betrayed by his wife, then killed 30 Philistines, most, if not all, before he officially became a judge. This week, I'm picking up just after he gave his wife away to his best man and pushing forward. After a while, exactly how long is not said, but after a while, and at the time of the wheat harvest, so somewhere around mid-June, Samson went to visit his wife, bringing along a baby goat. At that time, she had apparently moved back in with her father. We're not told what happened to Samson's best man. Samson went to his father-in-law's house and told him that he wanted to go into his wife's bedroom, but her father would not allow him to do so. Instead, her father said, I was sure that you had rejected her, so I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister prettier than she? Why not take her instead? Pausing for a second, the previous chapter had Samson giving his wife away, and now his father-in-law was unsure what Samson had intended. While some posit this could indicate different textual sources, it could also be merely indicative of Samson not communicating particularly well. Unpausing. Samson wasn't very pleased and resorted to his usual mischief and mayhem. He tells his wife and father-in-law, This time, when I do mischief to the Philistines, I will be without blame. I'm not quite sure how to explain his logic, but he was being honest. He immediately captured 300 foxes and gathered some torches. He then tied the foxes tail to tail with a torch in between, setting them loose into the Philistines' grain. And remember, this was just before the harvest, so the grain was dry ready to be stored up for the season's food supply. I know I've said it before, but in a modern world of grocery stores and an overabundance of food, things were different then, with people always teetering on the brink of starvation. And burning up the season's crops was likely worse than how we interpret it, and the damage wasn't limited to the wheat, but also the vineyards and olive groves. Of course, the Philistines were incensed. They said, Who has done this? The answer was quickly received. Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken Samson's wife and given her to his companion. Pausing for a second. While Samson's father-in-law wasn't specifically named, we do, finally, receive confirmation that his wife was clearly from Timnah. We already knew she was Philistine, but this narrows down the location. Their judgment and punishment was both swift and severe. The mob burdened down her father's house along with her father and her. It seems this manner was a punishment of choice, 
Having threatened to do the same, should she not disclose the answer to the riddle Simpson posed a chapter earlier? Besides the obvious, this was also how Simpson's first marriage came to an end, though it certainly had been on the rocks from the very beginning. That tends to happen with the betrayal of trust. Somewhat surprisingly, Sampson was enraged. But hate and anger usually knows no bounds. Sampson told the mobbing Philistines, If this is what you do, I swear I will not stop until I have taken revenge on you. According to the text, at least the New Revised Standard, he then struck them down hip and thigh with great slaughter, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. The NIV is clearer, relaying that he attacked them viciously, slaughtering them in the process. The King James has Simpson smiting them. Of course, that's how it reads. And, true to the axiom, hate and destruction leads to more. After the crops were burned, the Philistines marched up to Judah and raided Lehi, but the Judeans were a bit confused. The men of Judah answered the Philistines, and with their answer, recall that this was during the period when Israel was subjugated by their neighbors to the east, specifically the Philistines. This will be made clearer in a minute. All of this makes the response of the tribe historically held up as being the strongest, the lion, all more telling of the macro situation. Back in the text, the men of Judah answered the Philistines, Why have you come up against us? The Philistines answered, We have come to take Samson and to do to him as he did to us. Probably not literally, as they didn't plan on burning his cropland. But they did intend to harm him. The Judeans took the Philistine threat seriously, sending some 3,000 men down to where Samson was known to be hiding. And there's a few things implied in the text. The Judeans knew where Samson was, but did not betray him to the Philistines. And this location was probably in the territory of Judah. They also likely already knew of Samson's mighty nature. Otherwise, sending thousands of men to retrieve him would have been overkill. When the 3,000 got there, meaning the cleft of the rock at Edom, they said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then have you done to us? Samson was quick with his reply. As they did to me, so I have done to them. So, revenge begetting revenge. And now they were back wanting the next stage in revenge. A never-ending cycle, at least not until it would be ultimately decided. That was yet to come. The Judeans had heard enough. They told Samson, We have come down to bind you so that we may give you into the hands of the Philistines. Samson answered, Swear to me that you yourselves will not attack me. They swore the oath as requested. Then they told him, We will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will not kill you. They then bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. They would take Samson to Lehi, where the Philistines were encamped. Unfortunately, where this place actually was is unknown, as this mention, along with its serving as a battle site for one of David's mighty warriors, are the only two places it gets a note in the text. 
though that reference in 2 Samuel does relay that Lehi had a lentil field. And considering it was twice a battlefield, that seems to imply that it was in a plain or valley, possibly. The general consensus, based on both references, is that it was in Judah's territory. When the Judeans leading Samson all got to Lehi, out came the Philistines to meet them, shouting and likely raising Cain. At this point, likely while still being escorted by the Judeans, and certainly while still bound, the text relays that the Spirit of the Lord rushed on Samson, and the ropes that were on his arms became like flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. Flax that has caught fire has lost some meaning to us. Having them melt is far more understandable. After he was unbound, Samson grabbed the fresh jawbone of a donkey and quickly proceeded to kill 1,000 men with the rudimentary weapon. He then shouted his accomplishment and threw away the weapon. Because of this, the place became known as Ramoth Lehi, literally the Hill of the Jawbone, or Jawbone Hill. There's nothing in the outside record about that place either. After this, and quite understandably, Samson was parched, all while he was still in Lehi, marking the first time in the text he cried out to God. He prayed, You have granted me this great victory by the hand of your servant. Am I now to die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? It was then that what's described as a hollow place split open with water coming from it. He drank the water, and his spirit was quickly restored. That's why this specific place was henceforth known as Enhoch Kor, meaning the spring of the one who called. After this, or perhaps starting during the preceding time, Samson judged Israel for twenty years, all while still maintaining his Nazarite lifestyle. Which gets me to the end of Judges chapter 15. Chapter 16 begins some unspecified time in the future. All we're really told, verbatim, is that once Samson went to Gaza, where he saw an, um, lady employed in what some call the world's oldest occupation, and he did what some men do to keep those women employed. Moving along. While he was in Gaza, some of the men of the city hear that he is there. And knowing who he was, they wanted to capture him, but they couldn't find him. It was night, and as most, if not all, walled cities did at that time, they closed the city's gates. The men figured Samson was inside the walls, and they camped out at the gate, thinking he'd be among the first to leave when the gates opened at the first light of the morning. They expected to lay in wait all night, circled up, and were quiet. We're not told why, but Samson didn't make them wait all night. At around midnight, he made his way to the closed and locked gate. He took hold of the gate's doors, along with the two hinge posts, pulled them up, bar and all, put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron, a distance of about 37 miles, 60 kilometers, as the crow flies, and uphill, since Gaza was near the coast, and Hebron is at a 3,000-foot, nearly 1,000-meter altitude. And about those gates, 
though were not exactly told. These were likely not the size of a house door. They were large enough to allow an ox-drawn wagon to pass, perhaps even enough for one in each direction, and solid and thick enough to repel invaders, not small by any measure. And that was that for that quick incident, likely kept in the text as a testament to both his strength and cunning, and his fatal flaw. Later, with the length of time still unspecified, Samson would fall in love with Delilah, who was from the valley of Sorek. This place was on the border of Philistia and Dan, though that border certainly moved frequently. What's not said, but strongly implied, is that she was Philistine, just like his long-dead wife from his short-lived marriage. Delilah's Philistine heritage becomes slightly more apparent when she's approached by several Philistine leaders described as lords. They asked her to learn the secret to Samson's strength. If she could do this, they would pay her 1,100 pieces of silver. There's no consensus on how much this really was. I'll avoid, at least this time, converting the shekels to ounces and the ounces to dollars at today's silver rate, and instead take a different tact. Hammurabi's code, dating to around 1800 BC, so five to seven hundred years earlier, sets the value of unskilled labor at about ten shekels per year of work. This is roughly the same as what we can back into by comparing Deuteronomy 15 with Exodus 21. So, in this case, 1100 shekels represents over a century's wages. During the Persian Empire, so roughly 700 years after Samson, unskilled labor could earn between 2 and 10 shekels per month, varying greatly depending on the year and source. Going with the 10 pieces per month, 1,100 pieces are about a decade's wages, still a sizable sum. The truth, if you simply follow inflation, which we're all getting reacquainted with, the truth is likely somewhere in between, and overall a hefty bribe to betray Samson's trust again. Also note the Philistines had changed their strategy. They were no longer leading with violence, instead playing on greed. Delilah took the bait, approaching Samson, asking him to, Please tell me what makes your strength so great, and how you can be bound so that one could subdue you. And he was on to her obviousness from the get-go, leading her astray. Samson told her, If I'm bound with seven fresh bowstrings that are not dried out, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. And think of bowstrings as the cord used in a bow, as in a bow and arrow. Delilah relayed the instructions to the Philistine lords, who quickly brought seven fresh bowstrings to her. And by fresh, the text tells us that the vines, ropes, whichever they were, had yet to dry out. Yet something else that surely meant more to an ancient reader. Delilah promptly bound Samson with the strings. At the same time, Philistine men positioned themselves in an inner chamber of the same house. It's assumed all of this occurred while Samson was asleep. Delilah wakes Samson, warning him that, The Philistines are upon you. 
He arose, quickly snapping the bowstrings, described as breaking as easily as a strand of fiber snaps when it touches the fire. In anger, Delilah snapped at Samson. You have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you can be bound. Had Samson been acting rationally at this point, he would have kicked her to the curb. She was, at the very least, the second woman to betray him, or at least think she was betraying his secrets to his enemies. But he didn't walk away from her, proving that it was just as true then as it is today. The head cannot rule the heart. Instead, Samson said to her, If I'm bound with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. So, from fresh bowstrings to new ropes. Once again, Delilah relays the notion to the Philistines. She then ties Samson up with the Philistines assuming the same position in an adjacent room as before. And the outcome was the same. She wakes him by yelling, The Philistines are upon you! And once again the outcome was the same, with the ropes snapping like thread. And once again, he didn't send Delilah packing. She's growing more tired of being misled and still motivated by her greed. Greed that far outweighed any feelings she had for the strong man and judge. And she had come this far, so she wasn't giving up. It should go without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Simpson should have known better. Delilah once again addresses him. Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you can be bound. Again he misleads her. If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and make it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like anyone else. Third verse, same as the first. That night, while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web and made them tight with the pen. There's a little nugget embedded here. The use of the phrase, the seven locks of his head, is significant. Essentially, explicitly stating there were only seven locks. In other words, his hair was matted, potentially dreadlocks. And not only did he not cut his hair, he didn't wash it either. But running water was yet to be widely available to the masses. Or it could also be his hair was braided, or something similar. After weaving his hair, Delilah does what she does, awaking Samson again. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And when he does wake, the results are the same. She's still not giving up. Delilah asks him, How can you say, I love you, when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me three times now, and have not told me what makes your strength so great. Finally, after she had nagged him with her words day after day, and pestered him, he was tired to death. Not yet literally true, but certainly closer than he had been. And to note, according to the text, with his wife, he was nagged into divulging the answer to the riddle. The age-old, woman-made-me-do-it rationalization. So, he told her his whole secret. And he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. 
If my head were shaved, then my strength would leave me. I would become weak and be like anyone else. I'm going to pause here for a second. While he lived beside and among the Philistines his whole life, apparently neither got to know the ways and customs of the other very well. If they had, and upon seeing his hair had never been cut, and noticing he never drank a strong drink, you'd think they put two and two together, but they didn't. Relying instead on violence, bribes, and brute force, not intelligence and cunning. Unpausing. When Delilah realized that he had told her his whole secret, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, This time, come up, for he has told his whole secret to me. Then the lords of the Philistines made the trip with money in hand. Simpson fell asleep on her lap. When he did, she called in a barber who shaved his head. As soon as the razor touched him, he began to weaken. The Philistines come in, and before Simpson realizes what has happened, he's seized, and his eyes are gouged out. They wanted to ensure they never had to deal with him again. They carted him off to Gaza, bound in bronze shackles. Apparently, he still had some strength, as he was forced to labor in a mill, probably a grain mill. While he's there, his hair begins to grow again. At some point in the future, the lords of the Philistines gathered to offer a sacrifice to their god Dagon, praising the deity for finally giving Samson over to them after he'd tormented and ravaged them for 20-plus years. They threw a big party, bringing the blind Samson to their temple for entertainment. It's said he performed for them. What this means, performed, we're not told. What we are told is that he was made to stand between two structural pillars. At some point, Samson hatches a plan. He asks the attendant tending to him, let me fill the pillars on which the house rests, so that I may lean against him. By now, the temple is full of men and women, including all the lords of the Philistines, to the point that some 3,000 were said to be on the roof, were given no indication how many were inside. But Samson needs help. He called to the Lord, praying, Lord God, remember me and strengthen me only this once so that with this one act of revenge I may pay back the Philistines for my two eyes. A footnote says he only wanted to avenge one of his two eyes, not that it mattered much at that point. He then leaned against the two pillars, pushing with his right hand on the one and his left on the other, crying out, Let me die with the Philistines. He pushed with all his might. Finally, the temple fell, killing all who were in and on it. Thousands of dead Philistines with his last act. More than he'd killed the rest of his life combined. After this, his brothers retrieved his body. Wait, brothers? No explanation is given on where or who they came from. Speculation abounds. He was buried between Zorah and Eshtile, and his father's, Manoah's tomb. In the last verse of Judges 16, we're again told that he judged Israel for 20 years. And that's the story of Samson as found in the biblical text, which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. 
Normally, the next iteration would cover Sampson as found in the outside record, but next week's episode drops just before Christmas, so I'm publishing the history of the Magi, wise men, whichever you want to call them. Sampson will have to wait another week. You don't want to miss either of these episodes. Join me next week and the week after, as you don't want to miss either of these episodes. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.